Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2020. My name is Amato, and with me is... Serena, hi! Hi, thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah, it's been a while. It has, and this might... And it's been a longer time since you read retro fanfiction, albeit barely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because last time was for uh, BTS, right? Yes, that was not the retro one, yes. No. Like I said, this is barely retro. It's 2003. I mean, I've done, I've done later than this. But 2003, how old were we? Like, uh, High school. Yeah. Yeah. I was 16-ish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. That's okay. We'll talk about it anyway. And this is something that you kind of... Have you said what we're doing today? No, not yet. I was going to say. This is a story that you were interested in coming on to talk about specifically. Yes. You had read it before, right? Yes. I had read this some years before, pre-children, so which is like six or seven years ago. Or one lifetime. One lifetime ago. Yeah. And... And what's the story? The story is A Study in Emeralds by Neil Gaiman. Yep, Neil Gaiman. And the reason I wanted to read it is because before we had children, I was big into Lovecraft. We, and we both reread some together some alone Mm -hmm. had you read lovecraft before or like much of it before i had definitely read a lot of lovecraft in high school Uh you know more from like the geeky call of cthulhu like right of course but we had a couple of the volumes it's been reprinted so many times but you know what they had copies of a couple of the reprints these ones with like these gruesome kind of like scary looking covers that had absolutely nothing to do with lovecraft (laughs) or the content Uh i feel like they had copies of those in like the middle school library really that might be where i ran into a couple of them yeah which is probably not a great placement of them oh why not I mean, middle the, schoolers might like Lovecraft. The like deep-seated racism, well, mostly. You know that can be hopefully. I mean, I guess nowadays we should say we do not stand for racism. We no. are we stand for anti-racism. Yes, that's yeah. important. Yes, anti-racism. Yes, Lovecraft was the opposite of an anti-racist. He was a flat-up racist. <laughs> um, I don't think they reprinted, you know, in those volumes in the middle school library. The Red Hook one. Yeah, the Red Hook, or the one where like the plot twist at the end is like there was oh, a black no. woman in his family tree. Oh, that Ooh. one was bad. It was really bad. That one was really bad. <laughs> They were, like, compared to monkeys, I think. It was some sort of monkey. I think so, yeah. It was something with apes. Uh, Yeah, that one was really bad. Well, I mean, the fun thing is that we can just deride Lovecraft as much as we want. (laughs) No one has a vested interest in Lovecraft having been a good guy. Right. It's not like, you know, the myth of the Confederacy or whatever. He can have been a terrible guy if he was. Yes. Also, yes, terribly misogynistic. Yes, all those things. But he has some interesting (laughs) stories. Um, and has had, you know, had put his mark on science fiction and fantasy, right? Oh, yeah. And how did I even get interested in Lovecraft? I don't even remember what was going on I don't know. I don't time. think I was pushing for you to read Lovecraft. But it must have been like you had, like, mentioned it in passing or something. I don't know how else I would have come across it. And we actually ended up going, do you remember, to a Lovecraft, like, Cthulhu Con or something like yeah, that? Yeah, the film festival, the, the film... H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. Yes. We did a couple of years. Uh, maybe twice. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. We saw some good stuff there. Yeah. 
including John Carpenter movies. Yes, that's that, all like, I remember, actually. I remember that crazy, oh. like, 3D or stop-motion animated one. That one where one they went down and under the sea. It, was like, it wasn't under the sea. It was, like, deep into the depths of the earth. Yeah, that was really creepy. horrifying. It was great. Yes. And yes. <laughs> we saw that, like, TV adaptation of The Outsider that we liked. The Lovecraft story where it's, like, basically kind of more of a Poe kind of story where this like ghoulish person doesn't know that they're ghoulish and like goes out to the outside oh, world. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, that was good. That's right. We also saw it was was Dreams in the Witch House. There was like oh, a live yeah, action bad. version of that one. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Also pre-children. Yeah. <laughs> so basically I've read probably at this point most of Lovecraft stuff. Mm-hmm. I think even at one point there was, oh, I was listening to a podcast for a while, too, that was, like, going through them. I think at one point we even got some sort of copy of, like, you know, his lesser-known stuff, his earlier stuff that was, like, written in conjunction with people. And I even started reading some of that just because I had run out. But So what is it that made you want to keep reading Lovecraft once you read a little bit of it? Um, once I read a little bit of it? Like, right. what? Like... I, I mean, other than curiosity, once you were, like, once you kind of <laughs> got what he was about... What was it that made you want to keep reading those stories? Hmm. I mean, I guess it's just more different than anything I had read, right? Where it's like, you know, there's fantasy, but then this was like a, I don't know, a mix of horror and fantasy, but like so far removed from, I don't know, you can, that sounds so generic. I mean, you can say that like any kind of like genre. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's like the there are parts, I guess parts of it appealed to me, like the rural aspect of it. Like I grew up mm-hmm. in like a rural kind of town in the forest it wasn't like the rural of rural eastern united states or anything but like i don't know it's kind of reminiscent of like that of like kind of just like the power of nature except it's not nature it's like yeah but it's other not, stuff but i see what you mean it's kind of reminiscent of nature right it's yeah like the you wander out of the safety of civilization yeah, and then you you're kind, kind of, of get at the mercy more in of... tune with like what's actually happening in the ether around mm-hmm. you like so i don't know and yeah, I guess. And I mean, I've always... Oh, the other thing is, like, I as in high school, I was really into, like, Twilight Zone. I mean, it's oh, not exactly, yeah, yeah. like... Twilight Zone is with, about people and societies, and this is, you know, more of, like, the lone man and his, you know... I mean, I guess in some ways, too, it's almost like psychosis, right? Like, some of these things are just, like... I don't know. I don't have any coherent thoughts about it, but just, like... It's more of, like, an individual... A lot of these are individual experiences, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and like kind of horrifying individual experiences and that, I don't know, it just like, it was amusing, uh-huh. like to like learn about his style and. As someone who's into languages, I feel like you also appreciated just kind of like the crazy vocabulary <laughs> he'll bust out sometimes. Yes. You could do a drinking game for holy. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. Squamous. I, well, holy is the one that we started just like noticing every yes. single time. Yes. Yeah. I, I was thinking more like squamous, like those words that you've never yeah. seen anyone except Lovecraft use. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah. He has definitely a, a, a style that's interesting to, to read. But I feel like there's kind of three angles here, right, with this story. Because there's Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. There's also Sherlock Holmes. Yes, with this story. Right. It's because it's a crossover. It's a, yes. Or fusion or whatever. But I don't think you had any, like, deep fondness for Sherlock Holmes in particular, right? No. And in fact, I hadn't actually read any. I've only, I was only, like, aware of Sherlock Holmes in the, also in the ether, right? Like, mm-hmm. like anybody does with pop culture. And I think I remember one time when when our oldest son was baby, we were on a vacation. I read a Sherlock Holmes story because you had some sort of like anthology or something. And so I thought I'd actually like sit down and like read a story, a story. But like, and I had, and I realized I never had. And 
I guess I've just never personally been that interested in, like, crime stories. Yeah, mysteries. Yeah. Neither have I. The reason I had that volume is because I got when I was studying abroad in Japan, and I was, like, really thirsty about halfway through for reading English mm-hmm. books. Sure. And it was before I had, like, a, a book reader or sure. whatever. And that book was sold in the local English language section of a bookstore in Kyoto. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, by far the best word count per dollar Yes, I understand value. what you mean, yes. Because it was this, like, thick tome with, mm-hmm. like, half of the Sherlock Holmes stories. And it cost, like, 700 yen. Mm-hmm. And usually it would be, you know, books were way more expensive mm-hmm. than that. Mm-hmm. And that's the only reason I bought it. Mm-hmm. Got it. But then the third angle here is Neil Gaiman. Because yes. this is a Sherlock Holmes, Cthulhu Mythos, Fusion yes. by Neil Gaiman. Yes, which we've read lots and lots of things. What have you read and enjoyed by Neil Gaiman? Um, I mean, most recently I finished American Gods. I had like started a long time ago and never finished it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've read lots of his... I feel like lots short of stories? Short yeah. stories. Various, yeah, short story collections. I don't even remember. I don't even know at this point. Um, some comics. I mean, I never quite. I never read Sandman, but you had but we had else? some other comics that Coraline, Coraline. Yeah, sure. Mid Coraline. Sure. Oh, there was like the Graveyard Book. I thought uh-huh. it was pretty good. That yeah. was like a young adult kind of. Yeah, for sure. I don't know. It's just one of those things where I've read enough things that. Yeah, I yeah. also appreciate his work. <laughs> for sure, he's probably the biggest name you know current popular author that we've touched on i think in this podcast so far mm-hmm. and um you know sherlock holmes fan fiction is has a a long and storied history and because sherlock holmes is in the public domain you can write fan fiction about him and have it be respectable right mm-hmm. and so apparently Gaiman wrote this story for an anthology called Shadows Over Baker Street, which was just a whole bunch of different authors writing Sherlock Holmes Cthulhu Mythos crossovers. Really? They were yeah. all on the same theme? They were of... all on the same theme. Wow. Not the same world or anything. Right. They all had their own take on it. Oh, I didn't realize. And, you know, I that. so you can write Sherlock Holmes fan fiction and get paid for it. You know, I... And if you're Neil Gaiman, then you can write Sherlock Holmes fan fiction, get paid for it, and win a Hugo Award for Best <laughs> Short Story. Wow. Because now I think about it, I think I first came across this story in some sort of short story compilation. I'm not sure if it was that exact one or not. No, it was the. It was reprinted in one of the. It was a Lovecraft. Ga- one, no, one of the Game and Short Story books. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, strange things. Something. Fra- fragile things. I think. Yeah, that sounds like it. Yeah, so I had read this. I originally many years ago, like six ish years, seven ish years ago, mm-hmm. and then just re- reread it recently and it was really funny because like you were reading to me before bed that's kind of our like our nightly routine is Mm -hmm. in order for me to fall asleep Amada reads a book to me and it was so funny like as you're reading this even though I had read it like years ago it felt so familiar and like every like line and word is just like I don't know which is kind of like odd for me because I don't generally retain stuff that detailedly but you had a vivid memory of the I had story, a vivid huh? memory of the story and like i could i like could remember where it was going so okay. well let's start talking about the yeah. story and where it goes it might not be that long a discussion just because the story is very short right it's like just a few pages like seven pages something like that nine pages in this pages. pdf yeah the, the, it's available for free online on neil gaiman's website you can find a link to that at bit.ly slash rfr emerald 
But you can also just, if you search a study in Emerald, it's like the third thing that pops up after the Wikipedia article and, yeah. I don't know, something else. And it's eight pages of PDF, and each page is two columns, and the typeface is fairly small, but it's like 16 pages maybe in a normal book. Maybe. Probably less. Yeah. Not too long. And what's cute about it is it's in the style of a newspaper, like as if it's a newspaper article. And you were you were mentioning something about that. I was saying I don't know if this was the original form that it was written in, and I assume not, because it was originally published in like oh, a Oh, you're right. Paperback. It says illustrations and layout by Juni Kopunen. Yeah, well, it doesn't so, say when that was added, but... Right. I think it was just text originally in the original printing in Shadows Over Baker Street. Uh, and that makes the sense, because here it also says things. presenting the Hugo Award-winning short story. Yeah, so I think they were trying to, like, celebrate it yes. and reprint it. But it's very cute. It even has the date, Sunday, June is it 28th, 1914. The um, advertisements that show up in this paper at the start of each chapter have little, you know, black and white illustrations in that kind of old periodical style. And so were the advertisements in the original text or were they added just for this layout? My recollection is the text of them was there, uh, but the illustrations weren't. Okay, because those were a cute fairly touch. Sure. But yeah. I hadn't remembered that when I re when we reread it, but it adds a little bit of extra humor. Yeah, I want to touch on that. <laughs> this, is, this is set, you know, in Victorian era London, right? Mm -hmm. And before we even get into the content, these these advertisements that are at the start of each chapter, they're all referencing other, like, Victorian horror literature, right? Oh, and so there's, like, mm -hmm. Victor's Vitae's being sold by Victor Frankenstein. And there's and, like, Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde, and there's... Jekyll's powders. Vlad Tepes, which is Dracula, you know, mm. advertising exang exsanguination and stuff. And I just feel like every respectable author who writes some kind of old Sherlock Holmes fan fiction wants to do this, I feel like. <laughs> because we have read Rogers Lozny's Night of the Lonesome October, which is also Cthulhu Mythos and Sherlock Holmes and like all these other things. Okay. And there's this other book that I've read, um, Otto Dracula, which is alternate oh, history mm. where Dracula won in the events of Dracula. Yeah. And it also brings in like Sherlock Holmes and like, you know, all these other, Victor Frankenstein, like all all these other, like, things of the era, everyone wants to cross them over, I feel like. And it's not like they affect the story in this. It's just, like, you know, everyone thinks it's cute to, like, make it a shared universe kind of thing. Uh-huh. It's just funny. Well, he succeeds in doing that here, so <laughs> kudos. All right. But this is not normal Victorian-era London. I guess we'll, we'll start off. We've got our narrator. Mm -hmm. And our narrator's coming back from Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. But pretty soon you get the kind of Cthulhu Mythos content creeping in, right? Because mm -hmm. he's describing his experiences in Afghanistan and how he sustained his shoulder wound. Mm -hmm. Does he mention how about that specifically? Oh, yeah. He's like, he ended up descending into the depths oh, of right. the earth, like, you know, fighting oh, these, right. like, in, I don't know. That reminds me of that one Lovecraft story. Where, where's that one where they go underground and there's that whole, like, you know kind of kingdom underground uh, rats in the walls no i don't know oh oh the one with like the crazy subterranean yes I don't know. yes that one i feel like it's one of those ones like the dwellers in darkness where the titles all get mixed up yeah. in my head the i don't know if that's the title in but <laughs> but that over reminds me of that where it's like maybe they had to like go through all this like underground territory or something yeah. like that and the narrator got you know wounded by some like crazy being emerging from a mirrored this mirrored surface of an underground lake and like it bit his shoulder and like left a 
a white scar that will mm-hmm. not fade. And so he returns, you know, unable to use that arm very well and kind of traumatized by the experience. Mm-hmm. And and then he's looking for a roommate, right? A place right. to live or something, right? Which also like seems kind of Lovecrafty with like a, like a boarding well, house or something, right? It would be... But it's it's Sherlock Holmesian is what it's supposed to be. This, this echoes the first Sherlock Holmes story where, like, we meet John Watson, and he's been at war in Afghanistan, and he uh. sustained an injury to his leg. And he comes back, and he's looking for a roommate, uh. and he meets Sherlock Holmes, and they shack up together. I see. Literally, or just in yes. roommate style, whatever. Yes. Um, and it's something that, that Gaiman's coy with through this story, but we may as well just lay it out here now. This is not John Watson. And mm-hmm. the guy that he's living with is not Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. And you're, and he's not trying to hide it fully. Because if you're a, you know, if you're deep into Sherlock Holmes, you'll realize things like the fact that this narrator got wounded in the shoulder instead of the leg. Mm-hmm. Or he does not appear to be a doctor in any way, shape, or form, mm-hmm. unlike Dr. Watson. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But we'll come back to that later. There's but the otherwise, it's the same setup of relationship. Yeah. And the friend is absolutely a Sherlock Holmes figure. Yes. It's just the narrator and their friend. Yes. And that's kind of how they're referred to in the, well, the book doesn't refer to it as the narrator because he's the one narrating, right. but like the narrator and my friend, yes. unquote. Yes. And they, they take a place over Baker Street, like, mm-hmm. you know, like you do. Mm-hmm. And his friend is like a consulting detective like Sherlock mm-hmm. Holmes and like Inspector Lestrade shows up who's a Sherlock Holmes character. Oh, so that is an actual Sherlock Holmes character. Yeah. yeah. Well, all of them are actual Sherlock Holmes well, characters. Well, okay, yes, yes. Technically. Yes. But Lestrade is a regular. Yes. Um, and, you know, in short order, that, that same kind of relationship is set up, and Lestrade comes to the narrator's friend with a case. Mm-hmm. It's, I feel like one of the things to praise about this story is that it moves quickly, but it doesn't feel rushed. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. it's a short story. Yeah, there's only, like, a few scenes... Yeah. But it's enough. By the end of chapter one, they're already going out together. Like, you know, the narrator has described their Afghanistan stuff and, you know, come back and met their friend and, like, their relationship has been established mm-hmm. and, like, the kind of the deal is established and Lestrade shows up mm-hmm. and he has this case and they're going out investigating the case. Together. And that only takes, like, you know, two pages of this. But, but isn't it a little bit strange that, like, the Sherlock-like character invites this person to this crime scene. Yeah, the explanation there is a little interesting, actually. He's just like, I have a feeling that I can, like, trust you and that we have been fighting the... The quote here is, the narrator asks, are you sure you wish me along with you? Because the, the friend has never asked this before. Right. In reply, my friend stared at me without blinking. I have a feeling, he said. I have a feeling that we were meant to be together that we have fought the good fight side by side in the past or in the future, I do not know. I am a rational man, but I have learned the value of a good companion, and from the moment I clapped eyes on you, I knew I trusted you as well I do myself. Yes, I want you with me. And that kind of gives the, you know, wounded war veteran narrator kind of a renewed sense of purpose in life. Sure. But that's a weird thing for a Sherlock Holmesian character to say. It is. Especially, like, I'm not very familiar with, like, the original Sherlock and um, his partner... Watson. Watson. <laughs> the name escaped me for a moment. I couldn't, I'm not, like, they're, like, you said Watson's a doctor, so, like, that should be, like, a reason that they're working together or something, like, to I mean, he's, add medical knowledge. He's also knowledge. just, like, a trusty fellow. Yeah. Which, okay. is, which is the reason here, right? Okay. 
but I, it's just kind of odd to have our Sherlock Holmes person saying, like, I have a feeling yeah. that we have fought in, like, together in the past or future. That's kind of weird because are they trying to, like, allude that they are, like, reincarnations or something? Or, like, I don't know. That It's not... It's not I mean, exactly it feels, that. It feels more Lovecraftian than it is Sherlock Holmes. It's just more of like, there's something here, and let's, yeah. you know, let's just go with it. It's still not super Lovecraftian, no. though. Like, that's not a concept that really shows up no. in No, any... trusting other humans is not a concept <laughs> of Lovecraft. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of a counterexample, but it's hard. No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could trust rumors that other people are, are telling you. Right. Believe them. <laughs> As long as they're from a reputable man of science <laughs> and not some, you know, country rustic folk. country folk. Well, but then they find out that the country folk stuff is, it's you, know, you should true. be it's trusting true, right? them. You know, <laughs> yeah, you're just dismissing them because of their class at first, but you should be trusting their knowledge. Anyway. So the case is, it's, you know, politically sensitive because a visiting nobility from the German provinces, whatever, like the German principalities, whatever, mm -hmm. has been murdered in London. It's a big deal politically for mm -hmm. obvious reasons. Um, and, you know, the narrator and his friend go and check out the murder scene. It's like in a, you know, hotel room and the body's been torn apart and all this kind of thing. But here's also kind of where we get our, our first big drop about what's going on in mm -hmm. this world. Right. It's not... It's, like I said, it's, it's an alternate history, basically. An alternate Lovecraftian history. Uh, for one thing, the country's called Albion. We, we heard that earlier. That's kind of, you know, odd. The Queen is Victoria, Her Majesty Victoria, all that kind of thing. The guy who was murdered also has a normal name. He's Prince Franz Drago of Bohemia. But he's not human, and that's made very clear. Is it that they talk about Icar or, Icar or something? They, they talk about his blood being green, I remember. Yes, I remember that too, but I can't find the line uh, where the, they mention it. The friend oh. is describing why he knows instantly that it's nobility. Uh, oh yeah, they do describe the blood as Icar earlier. Yeah. But Lestrade's like, how do you know that it wasn't that it was a, a noble, a, a, a prince or whatever? My dear Lestrade, please give me some credit for having a brain. The corpse is obviously not that of a man. The color of his blood, the number of limbs, the eyes, the position of the face, all these things bespeak the blood royal. <laughs> the number of limbs. I appreciate that he says nothing detailed about what this guy looks like. It's just like anybody with a bird brain would know that more than two limbs is royalty. Oh, four. Yeah, you know, two legs, two arms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the deal is, as we kind of learn in shortish order, that it seems like all, at least the Western powers, it's not clear, but at least the Western powers and, like, the new world of the Americas are ruled by great old ones, like Lovecraftian <laughs> entities, right? Yes. And it's kind of, I feel like the, f the core irony of the story, right, is that you know, Queen Victoria is some sort of, like, you know, blasphemous, you know, demigod being, yes. like, Lovecraftian horror thing. And that changes basically nothing about society, right? <laughs> I mean, basically. You learn later that, like, you know, this prince is going around, like, you know, maybe murdering people for fun or driving them insane to taste their madness. But it's like, it's like the commentary here is that the you know, the ruling class of any government or whatever are already blood-sucking monsters who are, like, abusing the lower classes. So, like, what does it matter if they've got tentacles? I, 
Like that's that's a good point. I feel like that's where Gaiman's going with this. Yeah, right? they are just a different kind of ruler, but more or less the same. Right. Yes. As long as they 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 want these you know unknowable alien monsters that Lovecraft was you know described in such horrific light, and they would mm-hmm. be the end of the world if they return. Basically, they seem to want the same things anyone else, which is like uh, power <laughs> and pleasure and food and people to serve them. <laughs> Fair. Yep. Yep. But it's it's very much presented from the mouths of the characters. They're all very loyal, you know, loyalist to this creature Victoria that's been yes. ruling their people for like 800 years or something or 600 yes. or whatever. Um, and so the friend does the normal like Sherlock Holmesy deductions. He like notices like some dirt behind the door. Right. Just that's so normal. Footprints. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the type of tobacco that, you know, oh, he yes. finds, like, a little trace of in the room. Yes. Makes deductions and that sort of thing. And then he goes and reports to the queen, right? Yeah, they get, Why is they get it like, they... pulled over by someone who takes them to the queen almost immediately when they leave the crime scene. Right. Why is he supposed to report to the queen? This was, like, something from a special request from the queen. Is that why? It seems like the queen basically just calls them in into her august alien presence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they don't get a good look at her, of course, because it's all Lovecraftian. So but they, like, did they mention her being in shadows or something? Uh, yeah, where is it here? Um, yes. Here's the description. It's a, it's a dark room. She was called Victoria because she had beaten us in battle 700 years before, and she was called Gloriana because she was glorious, and she was called the Queen because the human mouth was not shaped to say her true name. <laughs> She was huge, huger than I had imagined possible, and she squatted in the shadows, staring down at us without moving. Ah, yes. That's about all you get. Yes. <laughs> she has a limb that she uncoils and, right. like, heals the narrator's shoulder as kind of like a good show of good faith. But it seems like she just wants to hear immediately what the friend deduced and kind of emphasize that, like, hey, it's really important that you solve this murder. Uh-huh. You don't actually hear the conversation between him and the friend because it's telepathic. Yes. <laughs> or at least half telepathic. Um, and I feel like, you know, it's interesting now that we mention it, now that you mention it, it doesn't have a, a, a big role in the story. That's chapter three. It's like the shortest chapter in the book. Mm-hmm. You could have cut it. But I feel like it's But it there. adds the, the yeah. atmosphere, right, right. of it's being there. ruled by the old ones. Absolutely. That's, I think that's right. Like, it's there for the atmosphere, not for the plot. Yeah. Kind of just like to hammer home like, yes. what the deal is here. Yes. Um, and, and carrying on from that, after doing some investigations, the friend takes the narrator to a show, like, you know, the theater. Yes, to a play, a play in three acts. It's like three one-act plays, I guess. Yes. Three one-act plays were performed. And it, it's, you know, funny, because the first two are very normal. Like, one of them is some, like, importance of being earnest style, like, comedy of, like, you know, identical twins being engaged to the same woman or stuff. And it's, like, totally something you could yes. imagine just, like, being in the real world, right? Yes. Mistaken identities, yes. The leading man played a pair of identical twins who had never met, had never but had managed by a set of comical misadventures each to find himself engaged to be married to the same young lady who amusingly thought herself engaged to only one man. <laughs> and then there's a second play, heartbreaking tale of an orphan girl who was starved in the snow selling hothouse violets. 
It's like the little match girl, yeah, I guess. Yeah, that kind of thing. And so that's all very normal, right? But then the third one is a, uh-huh. quote, historical narrative. Uh-huh. And it's about the coming of the old ones and how, you know, the the Christian priest, like, tries to warn them away, but in the end, everyone joyously embraces their return and, you know, beats the Christian priest to death and everyone's supposed to, like, be, be moved and applaud and, you know, mostly are and stuff. Uh-huh. Mighty... Where is it? And as each shadow... Oh, and there's something about shadows. There's some sort of shadow play that's, like, well, representing, here, like, the... Yeah, they, they show shadows of, like, of the, the old, great, great old, old ones. ones instead of showing them directly. Right. Right, because you're not supposed to see them directly, right? Mm-hmm. And it says, as each shadow crossed the stage, or appeared to, from out of every throat in the gallery came unbidden a mighty huzzah until the air itself seemed to vibrate. Oh, and I love this <laughs> line here. The moon rose in the painted sky, and then, at its height, in one final moment of theatrical magic, it turned from a pallid yellow, as it was in the old tales, to the comforting crimson of the moon that shines down upon us all today. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I love the, the term comforting crimson. <laughs> yeah. That's the kind of thing that really sells, like, the attitude of the narrator in particular towards mm-hmm. their, you know, cozy overlords. Yes. Like, that's... That's the way of things, and, you know, that's yeah. the way civilized, yeah. you know, world is, and by golly. Yeah, and that friend asks, what did you think? And then the narrator says, jolly, jolly good, I told him. My hands were, <laughs> and my hands were sore from applauding. Yep. So they see the play. Yeah, and, you know, the narrator follows his friend backstage, where he, he comes up with, like, an excuse to talk to the leading actor, and, you know, they have a conversation about things, and... He's really only there to, like, check the tobacco that this guy smokes. And, you know, he's here He's here also because he he tracked down that the murdered prince had seen these players once before in Germany and then went to see them again here. And so, like, that's the best lead he had, like, the mm. only place that he'd been to twice. Right, because he talked about, like, the murdered prince was, like, some sort of, like, you know, man of pleasure. Like, right. kind of, like, went to, like, brothels yeah, and, yeah. you know, gambling casinos or something. I don't know how they, like knew that this was the one lead, that the theater was, like, the one thing that stuck out of, like, all the places he had been. You've got to trust Not Sherlock Holmes on this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's much smarter than us. Yeah. He, he had good reasons, I guess. But he's not that smart, because, you know, they, they hail a taxi cab home, and they're just, like, talking about this yeah. case on the way back. And they even, like, had even just, like, met, they foreshadowed that in some way of, like, you know, not he, like not here, the walls have ears, or some kind of thing like that. But then they start, he starts blabbering a second he's on a taxi on the way home. Yeah. It's like, wait to talk until we're in a taxi with a driver who we don't know from Adam. <laughs> yes, I thought that part was like, yeah. For I was like, for a Sherlock? Like, that is horribly, like, what, obtuse? Is that the right word? Like, just, like... Like, that, 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 that like, indiscreet? Like, yeah, it's like indiscreet, you, you, right. You think if this is your line of business, you know, you would wait until you are firmly in, like, your own walls, you know, to, like, discuss anything sensitive, because it's like op- it's like open air carriages, right? Even it's like even in the cab driver aside, people could hear you passing on the street, right? Well, the story does call the friend out on it immediately because, <laughs> like, you know, he set up like a date for the 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 actor who he suspects to come and bring the playwright who he also suspects over, and like they can discuss a business proposition. The details are not important, mm-hmm. but instead they get a message saying like. Uh, yeah, I realize you're on to me, so I'm just going to disappear. And also, you probably shouldn't talk about these cases while you are in a taxi mm-hmm. because I was totally the driver. That way, yeah. yeah. It's just like, uh. well, oh, the, oh, it was that person that was the driver themselves. I thought that was that's just the through a conduit, right? Oh. Um. Wow. No, uh, that was my that was my reading. You're right. It doesn't say. 
all the all the note says is cab drivers cab drivers have ears too if they choose to use them. Yeah. So you're right. Maybe it was not supposed to be that same actor. You're, you're right. And anyway, he sort of declares he being the actor who sent this note sort of declares his allegiances that he's like an anti um, royal oh. anti royal mm-hmm. you know terrorist essentially <laughs> and you know saying that uh you know actually zentis that rule us are horrible monsters who do terrible <laughs> things for their pleasure and um we're gonna kill all of them that we can <laughs> and see you never goodbye <laughs> do, do not try to find us <laughs> and it's also a very sherlock holmes kind of ending where like as soon as they get this this letter lestrade goes off to like oh let's go try to find these two and like arrest them and the narrator's friend is like, the guy would not have sent the letter if he was going yeah. to let like the police find him. Right. They're just going to lay low until the heat dies down and then disappear. Right. So it's useless. Right. And it's kind of, I feel like the ending feels slightly abrupt, but it's just because it's a short story that's kind of getting in and out, I feel like. Um, the more interesting thing here, I feel like, than how the mystery concludes is sort of like the last revelations that it's giving you as a Sherlock Holmes or Lovecraft fan, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, namely, here's where you really find out, like, they have not yet caught Sherry Vernet, the actor, or whatever his name really is, nor with any trace of his murderous accomplice, tentatively identified as a former military surgeon named John or perhaps James Watson. Curiously, it was revealed that he had also been in Afghanistan. I wonder if we ever met. Mm-hmm. And so like, if you're not paying careful attention, like I wasn't when I first mm-hmm. read this, that's where you're like, wait, whoa, wait, the narrator's not Watson? Mm-hmm. And if that guy's accomplice is Watson, that means that guy is Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. which means who is the narrator's friend? Mm-hmm. But we find that out in kind of, you know, a last line sort of revelation of the guy signing off because you get his initials, that he's a retired major with the initials S.M., and I forget what the guy's name is, but it's the right-hand muscle guy of Moriarty from the Sherlock Holmes stories. Like who's Moriarty? Moriarty is a nemesis of Sherlock Holmes. Okay. Who was introduced to kill Sherlock Holmes okay. when Arthur Conan, Do- Conan Doyle got tired of writing Sherlock Holmes. Oh. And so it was supposed to be kind of like the concluding Sherlock Holmes story and like, you know, this ultimate enemy and like... He's oh, a, he's so like was a, he supposed to be Sherlock Holmes-esque himself? Like kind yes, of like two smart minds except, matched against each other? Except a criminal, right? Right. And so the cleverness of this story, like the, oh. the Twilight zone twist is that in this world, the evil guy is the one supporting the status quo uh-huh. and the guy with a sense of morals is the one murdering royals who are like horrible monsters. I see. And... Okay. And that's the deal. Yeah. And it's, it's very clever. Very cleverly done, yes. I mean, if you're not a Sherlock Holmes fan specifically, you don't care. <laughs> yeah, I, I that, that all, like, meant nothing to me. But even if you're not a Sherlock Holmes fan, it's still, like, a fun story. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but and, it's even, even like, more clever now that you've explained right. it more. <laughs> well, you know, it's like if you have to explain the joke, it wasn't that funny. <laughs> I suppose. Um, What's the deal with the Rasha thing or Rash? Like, what do, is that? Is that related to Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes, Holmes at all? That's it's just kind of it's a, just like the code name that Sherlock is going with. Yeah. Okay. Um, it means revenge in German, apparently, right? Mm-hmm. Or it can, among other meanings. Um, and so we've skimmed over a lot of the details of the story, but that's the shape of it. It's a mm-hmm. short story. Yep. And like I said, it, one of the things to admire about it is that it's very tightly written. Mm-hmm. Yes. I can't imagine... Like you said, gets in, gets out. I can't imagine it being shorter. No. But it also doesn't need to be longer. Like, right. it's the right length, basically. 
unless you were going to have a more climactic finale. But the anticlimax is kind of, I guess, the point, right? Mm-hmm. It's and, like, and also it, the fact that, like, information is communicated in letters. I mean, I don't know how right. much Sherlock Holmes does that, but that's a big Lovecraft thing, right? <laughs> that's very so true, to, isn't it? So to, like, end on a letter. Right. You know? A letter from the guy. Yeah. I, I, I guess the satisfaction of the ending is the twist that the narrator has gotten outplayed. That, like, despite the whole throughout the whole story, them seeming like the kind of Sherlock Holmes who's definitely going to get it in the end. Mm, that, in fact... They've been bested. Yeah, they've been bested. Yeah. They, they lost yeah, and that's the thread. Pretty cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've got to wonder, you know, Gaiman wrote this for a anthology of Sherlock Holmes Lovecraft crossovers. Mm-hmm. So you got to wonder what the others were like, or... I, I was just thinking, like, in his head, was he like, I'm going to write a very non-standard Sherlock Holmes you know, Lovecraft crossover, because everyone else is going to be doing the obvious thing, right? Where, well, so where, what's the obvious thing? Oh, Sherlock gets called, like actual Sherlock Holmes, gets called into some case and it turns out to like tie into some, you know, Lovecraft mythos uh-huh. deal, right? Uh-huh. It's like, oh, it's a case and actually it's oh. like Lovecraftian ghouls. So you're saying like, it's more clever that he decided to use different characters besides Sherlock and Watson. And a different Watson. world, basically. I and mean, you're right. Mm-hmm. It, it's, the story's more about the world building than anything else, I feel like. Because mm-hmm. you don't. it's not even about the character development, because really, right. like, you're, you're there's, taking... There's still... The, it's like the same mold. It's basically just Sherlock and yeah. Watson, right? But it's a different Victorian era. Right. Because of different ruling. It's like, the, yeah, the alt history that, like, talked about, like, Anno Dracula, right? Yeah, that's the pleasure of reading the story, more yeah. than... The character work. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> but we've come to the end of the story. Yes. We actually kind of are running out of time and need to wrap this up. Mm-hmm. So what do you complain about in this story? Ooh. That is where we usually go. I mean, it's, a, it's an award-winning story. I know. It's hard it's like, to pick apart complaints. It's a very short, very tight, very well-received story from a very famous, prolific author... Who I'm inclined to like already. Right. I'm, I'm having some trouble, like, finding the the things to complain about here. Right. It was just, like, a pleasure to read, I feel like. Just kind of went at a good pace and had some interesting word choices and interesting descriptions and good dialogue and... Yeah, I mean, good writing in yeah. general. Yeah. Um... The pastiche is good. Like, it feels like a, a Sherlock Holmes, Arthur Conan Doyle story. Um, with the occasional touch of, like, Lovecraftian-style descriptions. Mm-hmm. Um, it avoids any horrible racism. <laughs> we can always praise that in a story, right? Yes. Um, I mean, you know, there's the, the narrator... The narrator looking down on, like, the, the natives of Afghanistan and saying they were savages, but that's that's very much, like of the Lovecraft time and also it turns out this guy's on the wrong side in the end anyway like Mm -hmm. we're not supposed you're definitely supposed to take that as the character not the writer Mm. expressing anything right Mm -hmm. yep okay well let's turn that around what do we like most about the story I like Queen Victoria as a (laughs) as a monstrosity in the shadows I thought that was a nice touch um, I mean, it's got, it's got to be the world building in general, yeah, right? for That's sure. what it is. For sure. And I mean, I also appreciate the little, like, jokey ads 
at the well, start of each true. chapter, which like you know added a little bit of like lightness to the story, right? Even though it's like about a murder. Maybe that's one thing that I don't typically like about like Sherlock Holmes stories and murders and stuff. It's so like dark and like mm-hmm. you know can be gory and just like I don't want to go there. But like if it's like you know you have that sort of like comic relief between chapters, it makes the whole thing feel a little bit you know easier to, yeah, to get right. through. I hadn't really thought about the role of those, but you're right. It it kind of just signals to you, even though they have almost nothing to do with the story. Yeah. The first one actually is an advertisement for the plays that you were going right, to see later Right, 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 right. Which is also nice. Yes. But most of them have nothing to do with the story. Yes. But it does signal to you that, like, hey, you're not supposed to be taking this super seriously. Right. Like, it's just a, it's just a, a cute little sort of parody thing that, you know, just enjoy it. Have fun. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So I guess that's it. It turns out this award-winning story by an accomplished writer is pretty good. Mm -hmm. I recommend it. I do too. It's short. The PDF is, you know. It's short. It's accessible. Well-designed. Yeah. It reads smoothly, easily. And it's free. Once again, you can find a link there at bit.ly slash rfr emerald. And you can also just find it on, you know, Gaiman's website if you search. Am I... Wait... I, uh, now I'm psyching myself out. How do you say his name? I'm pretty sure it's Gaiman because we always thought guy from like Japanese guy, but it's... Right, but we were wrong. Yeah. I thought that was right, but then I started worrying that in fact I had mixed those two up and I've been wrong this whole time. <laughs> no, I don't think so. All right. Then that was episode 89 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective, uh, a study in Emerald by Neil Gaiman, published 2003 in, you know, official published author they got paid for this works that's a a luxury most fanfic authors don't have the intro song to the podcast is the weekly fair off of the album popey's incredible adventure by komiku and the outro song is run against the universe from the same album you can find that album and other works by komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com you can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic and if you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the episode, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook or Reddit or Instagram at RetroFanfic or occasionally RetroFanfic Retrospective. Or send us an email at RetroFanficRetrospective at gmail.com. Leaving comments or reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular would also be greatly appreciated. Retweeting us, especially if you are an extremely successful author with thousands and thousands of followers, Neil Gaiman. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm Amato. And I'm Serena. We're just two Earth life forms trying to be nice to each other in this vast, indifferent cosmos. Until next time, take care. Bye.